Those Space People is a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Caroline Bell. She is the director of Advanced Systems at Astroscale US. Astroscale is a new space company dedicated to on-orbit servicing and Caroline is currently based in Denver, Colorado in the US. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Caroline, you have a background in biology and chemistry, and you also had a brief stint at NASA doing an internship in astrobiology. And since then, you've donned a variety of hats in the space industry. So can you tell us about your trajectory and what led you to your current uh, role at Astroscale? Yeah, so it's it's been a bit of a, a winding path, um, but but fun along the way. So as you noted, I studied biology and chemistry at uni, and that's because I was really interested in astrobiology in this point at which you have a transition from chemistry to biology, right? When life is initially formed and how do we study how that may have happened here on Earth? How do we study and try to detect that on other planets, other celestial bodies in the universe? It's really fascinating to me. And so I, I ended up at NASA Ames. I did several internships in astrobiology and had just the best time. I was really excited to be there. There's so many interesting people. I, I learned a lot. And part of what I learned is that I didn't know that I was destined to be in a lab in a dark basement corner of a NASA base for the rest of my life. So um, I wanted to use my passion for space in a different way. And part of what I was exposed to at Ames, uh, because it's it's in Silicon Valley in California, and so there was a lot of uh, startup activity around and a lot of companies and new ideas uh, that were coming to the fore. It was right before we started to see the first commercial CubeSats. That was several years after I was there, but the initial ideas were circulating around and that's part of how I got interested in what are the new and different things we could do in space. You know, what we've done to date is great for science, for telecommunications, for Earth observation, but seemed fairly limited when looking at a very futuristic, broad view, broad scope of what could be done in space, um, both to use and benefit life on Earth and also in the, the side of exploration and discovery and science. And so that's sort of what has brought me to the, the business side of the space industry, where I've spent most of my career in trying to build up the understanding of the market, the way that different companies can relate to each other, can be successful. Um, and that's what's brought me to, to Astroscale, because I think we are one of those that is building the baseline for that future of the industry. I took a short detour in the middle of all of that after university to work in STEM education, because that's also an interest of mine of trying to get children more interested in studying science and technology. So that was fun and still something I try to do, but uh, is not a huge part of my day job. Astroscale itself is doing something very advanced, which is on-orbit servicing. And you are the director of advanced systems at Astroscale. So what further advanced things are you doing at Astroscale? Yeah, I think we as a baseline are doing fairly advanced and, and cool things at Astroscale. I mean, we're working on active debris removal, on end-of-life services and, and deorbiting satellites, and then extending the life of satellites. So it's pretty cool stuff. But part of, of my job and the advanced, as you note, is looking for Forward is saying, okay, this is where we are today, but in five years, what are satellite operators going to be doing? What will they need? What will be the challenges that they face? Whether that is on the commercial side, whether that is, you know, civil government like NASA and NOAA, whether that is uh, national security, what will those new dynamics look like? And how could Astroscale take steps to, to assist those operators be more successful, right? What are the services that add a lot of value uh, that we could work on today to develop that will be available in the future? So five years, 10 years, 15 years out, where do we see the trajectory of this on-orbit servicing market going and, and how do we develop that within Astroscale? So that's part of what I work on. I also, very adjacent to that is this mindset that 
building a new market and new capability is not something that one company can or should do alone. It's something that, especially in space, relies on the interconnected nature of the industry so that you have a lot of different companies who are each active in their own core capability set, but collaborating as well to bring together different capabilities to give you, you know, sort of that one plus one equals three type of situation. And so I also work with potential partners and work on collaboration so that we can reach those more advanced stages. And and so that's really fun because I get to work with colleagues across the industry. The space debris problem is not really new. Uh, Scientists and engineers have been drawing attention to it for quite some time now. But however, you are trying to partner with satellite operators and other stakeholders. So what challenges do you face in trying to bring them on board on solving the space debris problem? It has been a a challenging effort to undertake. And, you know, if we look back, this is not a new challenge. This is something that people have been aware of for many years um, as as a potential risk. When Astroscale was founded, Nobuo Okada, our our founder, was realizing that people were talking about this being an issue, but no one was taking any steps to to actually address it. And so that's where Astroscale came from originally. And, And of course, since then, we've broadened out to a variety of services that all address on orbit sustainability. But but debris is part of that. And, you know, the challenges that we face, part of them are from a mindset approach of, you know, doing things in a different way than we have for the last, you know, 60 years of our history in space. So working with, with satellite operators to, to think ahead for how they're designing their satellites, how they're designing their overall architecture, if it's a constellation, in a way that preserves the space economy. So, you know, whether you're designing a satellite so that it has multiple ways to deorbit itself, if there's an anomaly, whether you're designing it for servicing from, you know, a secondary vehicle, such as ourselves, um, but but really taking the steps to, to think ahead through that problem so that you don't create more debris. But then there, of course, there's the issue of debris that's already in orbit. And that's where we're working most especially uh, so far with institutional players. When you talk about space debris, one of the challenges that always comes up is who is going to pay for this? Because removing something from orbit doesn't have a direct revenue stream on top of it. Of course, there are huge financial implications, and that's you know a whole other aspect of the discussion that we can get into that, that impact everyone operating in space. But the isolated business case itself is something that, at least near term, we see something institutional players um, being more active in than than commercial players. And so we have a uh, project that we're working on from JAXA, and that will be an inspection mission around one of their upper stages that remains in orbit. The second part of that mission, they envision to be removing that upper stage. So that would be the first debris removal mission, which would be really cool. There's also been great progress from the European Space Agency. Uh, they just awarded a contract at the end of last year for their first space debris removal mission, which is a really exciting step. Um, so, so we're starting to see this global activity of taking that awareness of the debris problem and trying to do something about it, trying to figure out, okay, these are the technologies that we can develop. This is how we can work with commercial industry uh, in a way that brings innovation, keeps it cost-effective, has the responsibility element to remove this piece of debris. So it's a lot of pieces to come together, but it's exciting to see those two efforts and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see more moving forward as well. For any industry, it's either political will or commercial interests that act as a driving force to steer the industry in a particular direction. Speaking of the debris removal problem, do you think it will be commercial interests or the space agencies taking a stance? It's a really important question. And I think ultimately we need both. I don't think there is a way that we successfully 
um, make space sustainable without engagement from both of those entities. And, you know, you could have, uh, say, very strong political will, you could have very strong regulations put in place that cap lifetime on orbit after the satellite has finished its commercial operations, you can have a range of different policies, but for them to be successful, for them to encourage additional commercial activity and not really hamper that development, they need to be done in partnership with industry. We also need to remember that we are operating in a global space economy. And so licensing regimes are different from country to country. And so, you know, if one country maybe becomes much more onerous because they're really trying to take a super strong stance on on the debris challenge, that could just drive commercial operators to license through another regulatory regime. And so that's that's not something that leads to a long-term solution. And so we really need that commercial will on the side of it. We need commercial operators to understand that it is in everyone's best interest to tackle this debris problem, that it is in their own isolated revenue interest to tackle this, right? If you have a commercial operator that launches 2,000 satellites, 5% of them fail on orbit, and they don't do anything about it, that can create a risk of collision and, and damage to their own constellation, right? So that impacts their own bottom line. So, you know, and that's just one example of the negative impact of debris. And so I think we need to bring those commercial operators to the table as well. Um, and we need to have good dialogue, good collaboration, good discussion of what are the best practices, what are the the reasonable steps to take to not make the debris problem worse. And then also hopefully, you don't make it better by gradually removing those pieces of debris that are already problematic in orbit. The on-orbit servicing technology is nothing new. We have done a few servicing missions for the Hubble Space Telescope many decades ago. And with the current increase in upstream activities, you know, thousands of satellites and constellations planned, how come only a few companies, only a handful of companies are doing space situational awareness right now? Yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, as, as you note, started with Hubble in the 90s, right, when we saw the very first mission. Though I think I would set that separate from the type of on-orbit servicing we're talking about now, in large part because Hubble was a flagship NASA mission where there was a lot of effort placed on making that mission a success. And so, you know, what we had with the first servicing mission where NASA, of course, had access to the shuttle, they had access to astronaut time to be able to allocate a mission to fix that initial problem we had with Hubble, you know, and then that was so successful and the images that were captured were were so impressive. Um, I, was, I was struggling for a word there because I can get lost in, in, in Hubble images for hours, but there, there was so much scientific gain and passion and, and inspiration created from Hubble that, that then that drove the, you know, the future missions to, to service Hubble. But all of those being crewed missions were quite distinct from what we're talking about today. I mean, the cost profile for doing a crewed servicing mission is very significant. Of course, at that point, it relied on the shuttle. So, you know, without having the shuttle today, then you're looking at other vehicles and what is the capability set of those vehicles to do something like that. And in many cases, the business case just doesn't close to do something that costly, that that high for a, a commercial mission or, or even for the sweet, um, swath of potential government missions. So since then, there have been efforts to do more, more of a robotic focus. Uh, we've seen, you know, DARPA in the U.S. especially putting money behind robotic servicing missions where that has been successfully demonstrated in orbit over the last 15 years, which has been great. But I think part of why, I mean, to get back to your question <laughs> a couple of minutes later, um, you know, that part of why it's been slow is that the space industry as a whole is fairly risk averse. I mean, when you were talking about designing something that needs to, you know, withstand launch loads and then needs to operate for, you know, X many years on orbit, 
in a very harsh environment where you don't have the opportunity to intervene with it, it's, it very naturally becomes quite risk averse. Um, so even as we're developing really great new technologies and delivering great services, you know, there is always that risk question that's this in place. And then also the way of this is how we've been doing things before and this is what's successful. And, and our business case still closes by doing things in the traditional way. And so that mindset change to think about what could be possible with servicing when you're talking to a commercial customer is more of an open dialogue that has to happen of, of, okay, if I could do this for you, then what would the impact be on your business? And that's where having those robust discussions, you really get to learn more and operators really get to see what the range of benefits for their operations could be from servicing, whether that's in units, positive impact for the satellite itself, but if they operate a fleet of satellites, it has more of an outsize impact on how they're managing their assets in orbit. But that has been one part of it. Um, the other part is, is, yeah, developing the technology that you need to be able to safely do imaging to support rendezvous and, and uh, proximity operations, to do docking with, I mean, vehicles that have not been prepared for docking for, for on-orbit servicing, right? So you have to find creative ways to do that. That's something that that we have developed for our geo servicer where we can dock with spacecraft that were not launched with the idea of ever being serviced. You also have the policy side of things, right? To be able to have a license to do proximity operations and a, and a capture approach in orbit, it's very important that that's done safely so that we don't create additional debris um, that's core to who Astroscale is. And, and so you need to have that policy and that licensing framework in place. We've seen that done in the U.S. with early efforts by Space Logistics. They were the first ones to do it commercially in geo. And, you know, we applaud their success. And, and then in the steps they took, especially on the policy side to, to get there, you know, you have the you know insurance world that needs to line up. So there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle, I think is part of why this has been fairly slow to develop. A lot of fits and starts with missions that were commercial missions that were planned that then didn't come to fruition. But I think we're getting there. And I think that the 2020s will be a really interesting time for servicing. Wow. So this space, the in-orbit servicing space seems to require a really diverse set of skill sets because there's so many pieces of the puzzle. So what all skill sets do you think someone needs to get into this space? I would take any skill set that is passionate about servicing in this space. Uh, you know, I think there, there are so many challenges that we are going to face and, and opportunities. And um, I mean, especially a creativity of thinking about new ways of operating in space um, that so many skill sets can drive that forward. So much new energy would be would be really helpful. So, you know, of course, you have when you think about space, the, the core skill sets, of course, the technology is really important. So we need great GNC engineers. We need uh, we need mechanical engineers. We need a very strong technical base. Um, so there's a, a scope of opportunity there. Autonomy is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle that, that needs to be developed and refined moving forward. But at the same time, you need people on the business development side who can speak with customers and understand what are their problems? What are the, the ways that, that we can solve those and make you know, life better, make the revenue generation better, make the science return better, whatever the, the mission is. We need people in policy to, to work with government agencies, to work with representatives to figure out what are the policy approaches to this. We need people in communications who are able to very effectively communicate what is the, the purpose of this mission? How do we go about doing it? We need people who are able to build bridges and partnerships and alignments between different companies across the value chain to achieve more. We need people, we need finance people. Um, I should have said that first because this is a, a very tricky, especially when you're talking about startups, it's a very tricky question to answer. We need to make sure that as we you know, invest in developing technology capabilities, that all of that is done in a way that you know the business remains sustainable for, especially for all of these startups. So 
there is a, a huge set of capabilities that we need. And, you know, I think honor servicing is exciting for space because, you know, over the last years, we've been losing a lot of engineering talent, especially, but talent more broadly to big tech industries. And so with honor-rich servicing, I think it returns to that core idea of space is cool. So I want to, to, to work in that. And so I'm really hoping that we attract, you know, new talent out of university, hoping that we attract talent from other industries, people who are maybe interested in space and watch the expanse every time a, a new episode comes out, but didn't think that they could work in this industry, but they hop over and, um, and lend their expertise and new perspective. You know, I think with honorwood servicing, a lot of it is about perspective to do something different and the drive to succeed and to create what ultimately I think will be a better future. That's great to know honorwood servicing will bring back the sexy to space. If space enthusiasts or budding space professionals want to reach you, what's the best way? Uh, yeah, so I'm active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So either of those are good ways to reach me. I wish I could say that we could meet at a conference because that's the most fun to uh, have a, a conversation in a corridor after a session or at one of the industry events. But we'll have to hold off on that till the end of the year. But that is something I'm super looking forward to. But in the meantime, please feel free to, to reach out to me on one of those platforms. Thank you very much, Carolyn. You've shared a lot of really interesting insights. And thanks a lot for being here today. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. It's good to see you again.